I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. In today's episode of Project Recovery... It wasn't the feeling I was getting, it was, it was the lack of feeling that I was chasing. Like, I didn't want to feel, you know, so whatever it was, like, I, I wasn't chasing the high, so to speak, I was, chasing, I was chasing the numb. Make sure you listen to the end, find us on Facebook at Project Recovery. We'll have that and much more coming up. Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery. It's brought to you by our friends at KnowYourScript.org. KnowYourScript.org has been a sponsor with us for a long time, and without their support, we wouldn't be able to do this weekly podcast. So go check them out, KnowYourScript.org. I'm Casey Scott. That is Dr. Matt Woolley. How are you doing, buddy? I'm doing great. So, you know, the first part of the podcast is where we kind of check in with each other, see what's going on, and, and mm-hmm. I usually kind of give you some insight of what my week is looking like and things that I've encountered. And right. I've got a couple of things, but I was driving down here today and I was like, I don't know what I'm going to talk about because it, it's just, there's been a lot going on, but not really a lot to talk about. And then somehow we got to talking about my girlfriend. Right. The lovely Leslie. Yes. And so last night I had a sleepover. Oh, a sleepover, huh? Yeah, I was sleeping over at her house, and we were watching some scary movies, and uh, we went to bed, and I woke up this morning, and I stretched my arms out, and something felt weird. Yeah? The lovely Leslie wasn't in bed with me. Oh. She wasn't in the bed. She was up making you breakfast. No. (laughs) So I put on my gym clothes, I'm ready to go to the gym, and I go out, and there she is sleeping on the couch. Wow. And I was like, hey, why are you sleeping on the couch? You guys have burritos last night? No, or? no, no. no. Okay. It wasn't. It, I wasn't flatulent. Uh, I guess I was snoring. Snoring so okay. loud that she was like, "I think it's going to be better if I sleep on the couch." That's interesting because I think the tradition, if there is one, is take your snoring butt out yeah, to the couch. Yeah, she she kicks you out. Right. But we were talking about that, and it made me think. I'm ashamed to say it, but for a good portion of my marriage. I slept on the couch. Yeah, because of snoring or? Well, no, because of my drinking. Oh, okay. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. To where I'd come home and I'd been drinking and I wanted to get in bed and I'm sure I smelled like a bar and probably wasn't you know the nicest or, or, or just a lot of things going on. Yeah. Where she goes like, you go sleep on the couch. Oh, okay. And I'm like, okay, I'll go sleep on the couch because then I can watch what I want to watch because you don't ever let me watch scary stuff. Yeah. So I would go sleep on the couch <laughs> and every morning I'd wake up on the couch. Yeah. And I would be in my head. And when you're a married person, that's not where you want to sleep. No. You know, even when you're dating somebody. You that's, a, that's a common uh, couples therapist question is how often do you sleep apart? You know, one person on the couch or in the guest room or something. And so, I, you know, I, and so I, I told the lovely Leslie this morning, I go, hey, 
You know, you could have made me go sleep on the couch. There's no sense for you. You know, I mean, I was the one snoring. She was, I, I just didn't want to wake you. Ah, sweetheart. That's I, awfully and, nice and, of her. And that is nice. But it got me thinking. And, and it's crazy how stuff like that, I can look back and see patterns and things that I did that were destructive mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. I didn't really think that they were. I mean, I used to think I was winning the argument when I went and slept on the couch. And, <laughs> you did? Yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow you sleeping on the couch felt like a win, huh? It did. In, in, in That's my, pretty drunk. In my addicted brain, it did. Yeah. Because you know what I did? I got to do what I kept doing. Ah, okay. So you're like, oh, I, I've justified and I can keep doing what I'm doing. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? So if well, I, that's the addict brain right there is that irrational decision making that feels rational. Yeah. And you can justify and rationalize just about anything. Sure. We've had so many people who have come and sat in on this podcast who said they found themselves doing things that they could never imagine themselves doing. Oh, yeah. Lots and lots of things. I mean, you know, hiding your behaviors. Stealing from families. Oh, yeah. Stealing from families is a big one. Homelessness. Uh, Even homelessness. Isn't that amazing that a person could, that addict brain could justify sleeping in the park? You know, and it's amazing is that we've had people sit down on this podcast who went from nice homes to homelessness within less than a year. Oh, yeah. And so if you would have sat somebody down and said, hey, look, man, I got this drug. It's going to make you feel awesome. But listen to me. In less than a year, you're going to be homeless. (laughs) Do you still want to do it? Yeah, if there was truth in advertising. If yeah. there was, but I mean, yeah. but that's the reality of it. Is it goes like, yeah. oh, by the way, you're going to feel awesome, but you're going to lose respect from your family. You're not going to see your kids. Lose your job. Yeah. Kids will hate you. Yeah. Get divorced. And you're going to end up living on the streets. Yeah. You still want it? I thought about that driving in today as well. Um, you know, we got a little bit of snowstorm first of the year going on. It's pretty cold. And uh, I did think, I'm like, oh my gosh, what about all the people that didn't have a place to sleep last night, and they're sleeping out in the cold. I That would be just such a terrible situation, and we've had a lot of those folks here on the show. Do you want to hear a little uh, rehab inside secret? I do. That's when a lot of people search for recovery. Well, that makes sense. In the cold months. you get months, uncomfortable enough. In the cold yeah. months, they go, well, I need to find somewhere to stay. I yeah. can't sleep on the streets. It's going to be snowy. Well, I think it's interesting that you shared that story, though, because um, we're now talking about homelessness, which is pretty extreme, right? You know, sleeping outside, having no- nothing to your name and all of that. But you were justifying sleeping on the couch. That's not that many steps away. No. I mean, it's the same mentality on a lesser degree on the scale, right? Yeah. Like, you think you're winning. You're like, I'll show her. And you happen to have a couch and a TV. But, I mean, if your drug maybe had been more severe, more intense, if you had gotten into the opiates and things like that, you might have carried that same attitude out into the park. Or into my car or into, yeah. you know, to a friend's house or whatever it is. But that's how the addict brain works. Yeah. I mean, it is absolutely scary. Yeah. So I just thought that was interesting that, you know, that every once in a while in normal conversation, I'll have something and then something will kick back and I'll be like, oh. Make that connection. Make that connection. So tell me what, what's, what's the plan going forward. A, did lovely Leslie invite you for another sleepover or are you on hold? B, uh, what are you going to do about your snoring? Well, so my snoring comes in cycles. Uh, you know, when I, when I was 
a little bit more overweight, I used to snore a lot. Sure. And I think I have a stuffy nose, so I'm going to blow my nose before I go to bed. And if do I you ever do you ever rinse? Do you, you get that neti uh, pot? Well, neti pots are so involved. You can just buy uh, saline in the pressurized can. Uh huh. And that's what I do. I don't know. Maybe I'll try that. That's way easier than a neti pot. I'm going to try to sleep on my tummy. Is that you think that'll help? I think if I'm sleeping on my tummy, I don't snore as much. Okay. And I think I was sleeping on my back. That yeah, sleeping on your back is always the worst. I think I'm gonna I'm gonna try to blow my nose and sleep on my tummy. Blow your nose, sleep on your tummy, talk her into having you over again. Yeah. Okay. I think I can talk her into having me over. All right. Remember, this is the girl who stuck with me by stayed with no, me she, through rehab. She, she drove she, me around for a year when I didn't have a license. She's amazing. Yeah. I she, mean, lovely Leslie doesn't even begin to describe her patience and kindness. You know, a, a lot of people say they want to ride or die, and that means you want somebody that's going to ride or die with you. That's you want a ride or die chick. Leslie's a ride or die. Yeah. She's pretty good. No, I agree. Uh, one more thing before we get to our guest. He's got an amazing story. Uh, we both met him about three years ago, and I'll remind you how we did that in a, in a little bit. Okay. Um, <laughs> wow. But I found myself super, super busy over the past three months. Yeah. And I found myself slipping back into old habits. Mm. Like where I now need to to kind of sit back and go, okay, what are we going to do about this? And the habit was trying to make everybody happy Oh, with yeah. speaking engagements, with DJ jobs, with everything that I've got going on uh, with Mountain View Tidal and Minky Couture, trying to make everybody happy. I'm a I'm a yes man. You're an accommodator. Yeah. And, and you know, both of us struggle with that. And, and people say this and, and my brain's like, we can't do this. We can't do it. My mouth's like, yeah, no problem. I think the problem for me, and, and I, we've talked about this before, is saying yes. Like you, you're, you're always looking for an opportunity to say yes because you want to accommodate and that makes other people happy. And I like when being other, of service. When other people are happy, then you feel good because they're happy with you. Yeah. You know, and, and you do want to do all those things that people ask you to do, but, uh, for different reasons, I think both of us find ourselves saying yes before we really think <laughs> whether it's possible. So I find myself in that situation quite a bit lately of people asking me to do speaking engagements. You've had a, you've had a huge influx of people wanting your services yeah. in the last few months. I and, agree. And so I and I want to do it. And one thing is I don't want to say no because I don't want them to be like let's BS, man. We supported you through all this. We just want to hear your story. Yeah, yeah. And I go, I want you to hear my story. I want to be able to speak to as many people as possible. But I've also got to find a happy balance. I've also got three kids. You can't kids. do it every night of the week. I've got three kids. I've got a girlfriend. I've got an ex-wife. I've got a mother. I've got brothers. I've got you guys. I've got friends. And I'm trying to fit it all in. And it's not little stuff. I mean, last uh, last week you spoke at a big gala down at the Grand America Hotel. Yeah, with Alema Harrington and Randall Carlisle. And, and and as Susan, who was a guest on this podcast, mm-hmm. sent me a nice note saying thank you very much. And we raised more money than we ever have. And that money is going to help people find sober living. Which I think is one of the best places you can donate money to is helping people get a scholarship for sober living so that they can continue to be successful after a recovery program. And I wish I had been, I could have been there. Um, I really tried to pull myself together, but that was in that week of post-COVID, yeah. and I was so exhausted. I'm still not a 100% And I told everybody wise, that, you know? and they said, wish you well. And, you know? and but, so- but the pictures made it look amazing. But I bring that up just as an example for the listeners that 
it's not just a little thing here and there. The, there are some big events that you've been and, doing. And I lately. love being asked, and if I can do it, I will make it work. But I had to sit down and, and talk to myself and go, hey, look, Case, you can't say yes to everything. And so the lovely Leslie printed me out a calendar. And so when people call, I write it down. And then before I say yes, I go, let me check my calendar and see if the date. And then I've got to see if I got my kids that night. That's gotta, very adult of you. I'm, I'm working on it, man. Yeah. In a calendar, I use the Google Calendar. I don't. I don't, don't understand because Leslie's like, I want access to yes. your Google Calendar, and I was like, I don't, I don't know. know I'm, gonna, do I'm Leslie, and I are going to get you to do the Google Calendar because I don't know how people survive today without it. You can have it all color coordinated. Oh. It gives you alarms on your phone telling you when something's coming up. You're speaking Leslie's love language right oh, now. Oh man, if I didn't have that, there is no way I could do everything I do all week. All mine's up in my head. No, that's a bad idea. <laughs> that's a bad idea. Your brain will let you down. Oh, it has. Hey, uh, we've got a great guest for you today. His name is Dan Fosmark, and uh, we met him about three years ago when we spoke at... Uh, the uh, the, oh, big, the recovery event, the recovery event. for Bannon Recovery and uh, Brandon Novak with was Brandon there. Novak. Yeah, that's right. Of course, we're gonna hear his story coming up. You're listening to Project Recovery. A stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That is Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist. Both of us have met our guest today. It was three years ago. We had Brandon Novak on. He was speaking in downtown Salt Lake for Bannon Recovery Center. And I remember meeting you, Dan. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing, Casey? Dan's a big man. And uh, you'll be able to see his photo if you go check us out on Facebook. But Dan, that was three years ago. It was. But you just recently told me you have about 18 months of sobriety. So I, I went to Ogden High. My math's not the best, but <laughs> there's probably some hiccups in between there. Yeah, there's been many hiccups in between there. All right, before we get to the story and all that stuff, tell us about a little Dan Fosmark. Little Dan Fosmark. I got to correct you on the last name. Fosmark. Fosmark. You're a big man. I won't mess it's, it up again. It's, it's happened all my life. <laughs> Just don't let it happen again. Okay, well, sorry. Right. <laughs> I got gotcha. you. We'll be, we'll be fine. Um, yeah, I grew up. Uh, I grew up in. Uh, Clearfield, Utah. Uh, my dad is uh, Michael Fosmark. He's he's in banking. Um, my parents are still married. My mom, beautiful mother, Julie. Uh, they they just celebrated. I, I want to say forty two, forty something years. So which is amazing. They're rock stars. Love um, it. Yeah, I love to hear um, that. They've really shown me, uh, you know, what it looks like to have a. a, a like a ride or die, like you were talking about, you know? Yes. Like someone who's just going to be there when, when it all falls apart, you know? And it will. Regardless of, of what. So that's been a good model for me. But uh, So I grew up in, in Clearfield. I have two brothers. One One's uh, two and a half years older than me, Brady. Uh, and, and Riley is four years younger. Um, I'm 36. So, so you're, you're definitely kinda, right in the middle. With, right in the middle. With a good space between. Good space, yeah. good Norwegian jeans. Yeah, you got um, that red beard, those big muscles. Yeah. I mean, you look like a Viking. Yeah, we uh, we we have a cornrows. Uh, we we don't have a we don't have a small family. 
<laughs> big guys. Yeah, Costco has benefited a lot from, from my family. <laughs> from the Fosmarks. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I grew up uh, playing playing football. Uh, football was kind of my my thing. Would um, you say it was your identity? Yeah. It was wrapped up. It was definitely wrapped up in that. Uh, my my dad was a college football player, um, and 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 to this day, I mean, my dad's not in in my mind still really isn't like a human being. Like he's 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 the archetype of of what a man should be. You know? Kind of larger than life. Yeah, yeah. He's he's you know he's he's the best man I've ever met. That's Hands awesome. Down. I love so, it when a, when a kid can say that about yeah, their parents. Um, yeah, that's it, great. Talk about integrity, um, and th- and that's been a battle for me to to be able to to come from where I've come from, knowing what a, what a childhood I had that was great, you know, and and be able to wrestle with that and coming to terms and be able to, you know. Do you feel like your okay? childhood was pretty typical? Any any big uh, setbacks or problems there, growing you know, up? There's as just a kid? not a lot of trauma, but um, but man. Being a kid's hard. Yeah, I mean, growing I mean, up's not easy. Yeah, growing up hard. Everything that everything that you experience as a kid, you you know, shapes how you how you see the world, how you how you perceive um, everything around you. So, so like just me and my brothers. I mean, we grew up in the same household, same parents, same. We're vastly different people, vastly different uh, uh, stories. Um, they you know, call that non-shared experiences. So yeah. even twins growing up in the same household, you have non-shared experiences, and that accounts for why some why people are different, you know. And then especially if if you have you know these brothers that are you know three and a half and four years separate from you in age, you know the parents that they got were a little different than the parents that you got because of the different ages and parental experiences and finances and all that kind of stuff. And so even though a really a family can be very close. And love to be together, and like you said, not really have a lot of trauma, have really good experiences. Yeah, everybody's a little different because you do have non-shared experiences. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, I think I think just being different ages um, psychologically. I mean, you know the that that period when you're, you know, three to three to five years old when you just really form all these you know character character traits and and um core beliefs you know like a, a source of abandonment like just just out of out of small memories that you have like you know your dad going to going to work and like not knowing like you're three you don't know if your dad's going to come back or not. I don't know if you know like back. you don't know you can't yeah. you can't process that information but that that plants that could plant a seed and it, and if it, if it's nurtured then that can grow into something that that you struggle with down the road you know so you had a pretty normal childhood. You said not much trauma. When mm-hmm. somebody says not that much trauma, was there some trauma? Um, no, you know, I uh, as far as like you know, big big family events, deaths. There was there was never any um, any substance use in the house um, growing up. Um, I always felt like I kind of was different than everybody else. I think I think it's probably pretty common on. Um, for for addicts and alcoholics, got it. Just uh, a restless, irritable, and discontent um, with with the present circumstances. Are your brothers always. athletes like you, and are they big like you? They they are athletes. Um, yeah, my my older brother was an all American. Um, he has a sack record up at Weber State. Um, uh, 
be stellar defensive end. Um, uh, my little brother played high school ball and college ball. Um, I I played high school ball, um, and w- this is kind of where the, the addiction jumps off. Um, I blew my shoulder out when I was a junior in high school and had to get it totally, like, reconstructed, my labrum and everything. And, and that started uh, a journey with and a struggle with painkillers. And I had, I, I ended up having five surgeries in, in the next four years. So that, that critical time in my life where all my, all my buddies are leaving on missions, I'm transitioning from high school to, I'm, I, I can't play football. My, my, basically my life dream is shattered because, um, that's just kind of what I always wanted to do. And, and it was, it was a realistic goal. You know, it was like, well, and I venture to just jump in there and say it might have been more intense for you as a as a life goal than the average person because you had a father that you felt was larger than life that played college football, mm-hmm. all American brother, yeah, yeah. all American yeah. brother, dad was an all American, yeah, yeah, dad's an all American, older brother's an all American, yeah. and you're also that middle child, and the middle kid sometimes feels a little passed over, and so middle kids can be a little more discontent with finding their place in the world and they can act out a little bit more. And it's like, if that, that thing that you thought you were going to do to sort of be part of the, the brotherhood of the family, you know, mm-hmm. to, to define yourself, that's taken away with a severe injury. It sounds like, yeah. uh, and then of course the addiction uh, on top of that, um, that can create a lot of um, anger that a kid that age, 17, 16 doesn't really even understand. Yeah, it it was it was definitely that. It was a kind of a perfect storm. So I I wasn't really sure like kind of who I was and you know all these people that I kind of grew up with or like leaving going on um you know church missions and I I grew up a non-LDS um non-denominational Christian um family. Um And just for some of the listeners like Clearfield especially back in those days uh high high dense population of Mormons, Church mm-hmm. of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints. Yeah. And so when after high school, uh, a lot of your friends probably were going to yeah, serve we're going a mission. Yeah, like LDS missions Yeah, and, and so they were taking That's take a two-year. That's a two-year commitment. And it gives you, I think, it gives you kind of that sense of purpose where after high school, a lot of people sort of struggle. Okay, you know, what am I going to do now? Am I going to play a sport? Am I going to go to college? Am I going to work? Am I going to get a trade? Am I going to military? Yeah. And you're kind of dumb at that age. So you don't really know what to do. And so I think in some ways for the Mormon kids going on those two-year missions, it feels kind of like, oh, I don't have to think about that bigger long-term stuff because I have this commitment and it feels good. And I've known a lot of people who either are LDS and aren't going or, or grow up not LDS, um, they can feel sort of left behind because they're like, oh, all my buddies are either heading off on a scholarship to play ball somewhere or they're heading mm-hmm. off on this LDS mission and I feel sort of lonely and directionless. And I don't know if that's yeah. how you were feeling. Yeah, that. well, <clears throat> it, interesting story. It worked out, pre, you know, in my favor. I was I ended up being pretty good at throwing shot put, um, uh, just kind of something to fall back on so I didn't have to wrestle in the off season because it was just <laughs> like, you know, a lot of wrestling. And I, I like to lift weights, but I don't really like to, you know, wrestle. So... I was Casey like, was a wrestler, I'll, right? I'll throw shot. I wrestled a little bit. Yeah, I'll throw shot, and then I won't have to run a lot. I could just yeah. throw this metal ball because I'm, you know, strong, and uh, I ended up being pretty good at that, and and won the state championship by junior and senior year, five A. Um, wow! And so I end up with a 
with a full ride scholarship to for track with, okay. with these shoulder injuries. But with all that success, um, that wasn't that wasn't what I had envisioned for my life, and so it was it was not okay. Before we get into the college years, and uh, I want to go back to high school a little bit. Uh, did you dabble with alcohol? Did you dabble with anything in high school, or was the first time that you got your shoulder worked on your first experience into substance? Um, you know, I think I, I I I can't remember like the first time I drank. Um, it wasn't like an epic moment or anything like that. Um, but I do remember getting pain pills for the first time and going like, okay, this, you know, this not only takes the edge off of this, like, you know, big incision that I have in my shoulder, but it also like, I don't have to feel like any insecurity or I don't have to feel like I'm somehow didn't measure up to my expectations or the bar that I, my perception of the bar that was put for me. Talk about that for a little bit. Cause you said you felt kind of different, mm-hmm. you know, as a teenager, can you expound on that? Like, like in what ways or when did you notice you felt a little different? Cause it sounds to me like some of that emotional stuff, that interpersonal stuff was being treated also by the opiate. Like there was a change. Yeah. There. Well, the, the, the opiates did way way more the physical physical pain is is something that's like not not that big of a deal like you just get through physical pain but um but like taking the edge off of like feelings of insecurity or like or self-esteem um feeling now, a like, lot of people might look at you and be like oh come on you're a big big guy big you can bench strong. press up bugs yeah come on. i mean you know you you know big strong good looking guy playing football uh how could he have some insecurities Absolutely. I mean, you know, I'm I'm looking at my older brother who's an all American in college football and 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 he's, you know, getting looks at for college combine or for pro combines and he's getting, you know, pro day and, and all that stuff and, and I'm and I'm throwing shot put. And that's and that's a blessing. Like that paid for you know, it paid for school and, and you know, I it was a it was a super big cool thing that I got to do. But my mind state then was very ungrateful because that wasn't what I because it perceived. wasn't football. It and wasn't that's football. What you wanted to do and because Fosmarks played football and that's what I was supposed to do. And if I couldn't do that, then I was somehow fell short of 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 the mark. And, and that was that was somehow uh, whether consciously or subconsciously that ate at me for for a long time. And what a lot of people don't understand, we say on the show. That, um, you know, addiction is no respecter of persons, right? We've said that a lot. It doesn't matter who you are, doesn't what your background. But you know what? Insecurities are the same. Like, their insecurities do not discriminate. Everybody has insecurities. And when you're at that age, that's a pretty big insecurity because I know what it was like at that age. You had, you had your mind set on something and a lot of kids, you're, you haven't had enough knockdowns in life yet to be flexible in your thinking where you're like, okay, well, that did work out. We'll move on to something else. When you're 16, 17, you're going to be a football player. It, you know, you don't want to be the track kid. You don't want to, you know, play tennis. You don't want to be a golfer. Like football was what was in your head. And even though now you can look back on it and say, I was grateful for that opportunity, paid for school. There's nothing not manly about throwing a shot put, but it just wasn't football, yeah. right? Yeah. And, yeah. And so it's it's important for people to understand that everybody harbors insecurities. And if we don't figure out healthy ways 
to deal with them, we'll figure out unhealthy ways to deal yeah. with them. And so, like I said, there, there wasn't a lot of trauma when I was growing up, but that was that was traumatic for me. You know, that was that was the, the you know, the time in my life where it was supposed to be like all coming together and it was all falling apart. All the hard work, all everything the, that you've all done. The hard part, all the hard work. Like, I mean, we're talking like from playing football at eight, eight years old. That was the plan. Were you competitive with your older brother? Were you always like, I mean, he's a lot older than you, so maybe not directly competitive, um, but. Well, he's, he's a couple of years older than me. We're definitely directly competitive, but we, we both we both have a lot of respect for each other. Um, but I mean, as a kid, you might have been like, oh, I'm going to be better than my older brother. Whatever right? he ran yeah. the 40 in, I'm going to run it in faster. Yeah. Whatever he could lift, I'm going to lift a little bit more. I mean, that's how I am with all my, my brothers. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's very yeah. competitive. It's healthy, but it's very competitive. Yeah, he. he I mean, he, he was an athlete, and I, I'm a little bit thicker. Bill, I, I'm six foot to 68 so or so right now. Um, what did you play in football? What position? I played center and D tackle, and I played high school ball at 265. So what? I was a large, oh. large child. Wow, that's yeah. a big high school yeah. ball player. Yeah, and I was squatting over six hundred pounds and benching over three hundred. And- so you were you were you were a legend, man. Like that's a high no, school. No, when legend. I say when I say the, the the there was an opportunity to to potentially have have a career or or to play football for for a period of time. Like oh, that, for that sure. Was a, See, a, I played a very high real. It was a very real dream. It wasn't Dr. Matt just a, played for BYU. There you go. Well, played is an overstatement. I, I, <laughs> but he's on the team. I got, yeah, a little bit, barely. But um, but like I played all through high school, and and actually my buddies and I got, just got together for like a thirty year reunion recently, and we were talking about kids from other schools because within your you know district and stuff, some of the big guys become legends. Like, oh, you remember this guy? And I'm like, oh yeah, we we're all scared of him. He was so big, you know, because we were just like skinny little punks you know and so i'm sure that you your uh presence on the football team was was noticed and known by other schools so this is a i i'm just i'm not trying to beat a dead horse here what i'm trying to do is help the listener understand this is a big fall in a kid's expectations yeah when you are that big of a deal and i'm not i'm he didn't say that i said that but i i know you know, from being a high school football player, and you get you get to know the other schools and the other teams, and who's gonna who's gonna get a scholarship? You know, who's and, got a shot you know, to go further? Further, yeah, yeah. You know, and you're you're like, you know, I could kick a football, so I got a little bit of a chance to do some of that past high school. But but most, you know, you know who they are, right? And so if you're that guy who everybody's like, oh yeah, yeah, he's gonna go. His dad went. His brother went. He's gonna go. He's gonna play some place big, and then to have that taken away. That is a huge difference between most of us regular guys trying to play high school football where we're like, oh, yeah, it's okay. I mean, you know, but th- I just want people to understand that while you didn't have trauma in your family life growing up necessarily, that is a traumatic event. That yeah. really does make an impression in, in a, that's a, that was probably your biggest first challenge in life to have to deal with. Yeah. And it, and it, it really set the tone for kind of how I, how I perceive myself for a lot of years, you know, and, and I, I always had a, a, I don't, an imposing exterior, I guess. Um, but, uh, but I, I've always been like a super insecure person, like just really, um, you know, it was funny talking about, uh, being a yes man 
or, or trying to, you know, make everybody happy. People. Yeah. So <clears throat> if I can kind of jump into a little bit of the, the recovery part for me. Yeah. Um, you know, I went to my first rehab when I was 20. Um, and it was a, it was a, a hospital, like a, a outpatient program. And, and I got, and I learned some things and I, uh, every, every step of the way I've been to like nine rehabs, every step of the way, you know, in the, in the 15 years that I was like legitimately trying to, to figure out why I kept doing the things I was doing. Um, uh, I learned a lot of, of really good stuff and I, and I went to, uh, you know, I did the 12 step stuff and all that kind of stuff, but I, I ended up at, at Odyssey house and, and, and there I learned, um, through, through the most incredible woman. Um, uh, she was my therapist t- teaching me about, um, about thinking errors, um, and, and core values and, and how, how people pleasing. Um, so, the way the way like my life kind of worked, I, I would always I was always doing things or trying to be like the the shining stars to get approval because I needed exterior validation, and and so so the motive for my for a lot of my my doing things was to either gain some favor in the future for something I'm gonna do because I'm probably gonna do something to screw this up mm-hmm. and I need some. You know, I need to put some savings in there or I'm making up for something on the back end. Um, but I'm going to be very, very available and very, very agreeable in order to basically manipulate and get what I want for my selfish means. But I didn't know I was doing that. Mm. In, in my mind, I'm, I'm just I'm a I'm a just I'm a people pleaser. You're just being a good guy. Right? I'm just right? being a good guy. But, yeah. but every time. I try to do something for you and I have an expectation on how you're going to react to that. And I haven't told you what that expectation is and you react and, and you're never going to react exactly how I want you to react. Right. It's never going to be the same because I, I haven't expressed that to you. And so then I, I feel like I fell short somewhere. And so then I, and then I beat myself up and I say like, I, you know, I'm not doing this right. I got to do better. I, I don't like this feeling that I have. So maybe if I drink or use, like, you know, this feeling would go away. And then when I do that, then it starts this guilt and shame, you know. And then and then I and then I end up doing something that I shouldn't do. And then I have to people please to in order to, to calm the waters. So it seems like we got a little insight of how this works for you. So what I want to do now is go back to that first surgery. Mm-hmm. And you said you had, I think, five and four years. Uh, the first surgery takes, you get your pain medicine, and do you take it as it's intended, or do you automatically from the get-go, you went, hey, this is some good stuff? Um, well, it was early 2000s, so there wasn't, there wasn't like, you know, nowadays, it, there's a lot more education. Education, there's, you know, there's an epidemic. People are, you know, just dropping like flies out of it. So many, I've been to so many funerals. It's, it's Sad. It's 36, and I've been to few, so many people, my buddies have died. Like it's, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's, a, I mean, that's why we call it. If people think we're overstating it when we say there's an opioid epidemic, we're not. Oh, that's it, proof. It, that there are more we're people not. die from heroin than, than, than in a year that, that died from COVID. 
Yeah, every yeah. single year times times a lot. And know? 2000, so. we were still in the thick of it with very little education. Yeah, very little very education. Little support. And, you know, and, and oxycotton was being produced, and and they had come out with this finding. You know, it, it I think Purdue or I think it was Purdue the the, the university that synthesized that mm-hmm. stuff. You know, came out and they they you know were like this is a non addictive substance, and so no one really knew. And the doctors. You know, I was I was a scholarship athlete. You know, well, the first surgery, I was just getting back, you know, trying to play football some more. And then the, the next surgery, I, now I'm a scholarship athlete. So now I'm, they're paying for school. So now I'm I'm a I'm an asset. You know, I'm making money for you know potentially making money for a program. And they're paying for my way to go to school. So so obviously my my health care is going to be um, a little probably better. You know, I'm, I'm going to have a lot more freedom. Oh, yeah. Student athletes can walk in and get the full treatment all the time. Yep. yep. Yeah. Yeah. Everything that I needed as far as like massage or, or, or medicine or whatever I needed, shots, whatever whatever I needed to, to get through what to I needed perform. to get through to perform and do, what I, do my job, that's what I had to do. Um, and so I was vastly uneducated and, and, and these things, you know, just made – life just seemed a lot better you know it was just like that sense of ease and comfort that like that first drink gives a lot of people um i think that that first you know pill gave me that sense of i oh i'm okay when did you uh well you know what we're going to take a break here when we come back i want to ask you the question you can think about it or we take a break when did you start to notice it becoming a problem you're listening to project recovery right here on ksl Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. Our guest today is a big man, Dan Fosmark. How you doing, buddy? I'm great. How you doing? So uh, we were talking to you about your first surgery. You blew your shoulder out playing football. They tried to put it back together. Uh, the second time it got hurt, kind of ended your football career. But you end up throwing shot put on the collegiate level for Weber State University, home of the Wildcats. I know that because I live right by there. You're the spokesperson. Yeah, I'm on the field. Um, but I asked you a question before we went to break. When did you know that uh, the pain pills were becoming a problem for you? Um, uh, they didn't become a problem for me. <laughs> That's an addict answer right there. For a lot of years. That's an addict answer. With a big uh, smile on his they face. They became a problem for other people. Um pretty quick i'm i'm i definitely am i'm not a guy that that does anything um at a at a gear one yeah i mean and what we've learned on this podcast is most everybody that comes on the show nobody does anything halfway no it's that all all or nothing mentality yeah i'm gonna lift all the weights you know and i'm gonna you know i'm just gonna gonna drink all the beers yeah I'm going to uh, yeah. do all the coke. I'm, I'm going to do yeah. What, what, yeah. I mean, that's what it is. You know, ended up being a half gallon of gin guy a day. Wow. You know, Sheesh. just because that's just, I just am that guy. Yeah. You know, so. So, but you know, it's interesting that you said that it wasn't a problem for me. And that's, I, I mean, here's my voice to my ex-wife. Yeah. It's, it, it, it's, it's not your I'm problem. Fine. I'm yeah. fine. Why are you bothered? Why by are it? you bothered yeah. by it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I know care. now looking back. It was a problem because yeah. addiction is a family disease, yeah. but you're so... So who were some of the first people that had a problem with your opioid use? Uh, definitely my parents. I, I mean, I think 
uh, I think they always kind of knew I was, I'm just a lot more, I don't know, outgoing, just a little bit different than my brothers. Just a, a little more, you know, free, I guess. I don't, just less reserved. Um, so I was always kind of like life of the party. So I was trying everything, you know, whatever. I didn't care a whole lot. You know, it wasn't a big deal. But my parents started like, you know, noticing um, just being different, you know, just like kind of numb, just not, you know, this time I'm, I'm, I'm fighting some like serious depression, um, you know, with all that stuff going on, like not being able to play football anymore and all that kind of stuff, new school new people, you know, all that kind of, so I'm finding some depression. I'm, I, you know, I'm seeing doctors and, and, and they're over prescribing me Xanax and Ambien and, and man, I mean, antidepressants and pretty soon I'm a, I'm a, like, just, I'm literally watching myself walk through life, just being a numb just so your parents it. probably noticed a more of a withdrawal yeah, from, and I don't, you know, your normal personality. Yeah, I don't think they knew quite what to to do because it was, you know, on, on one hand, you know, this is they, – they were uneducated as I was. Um, and so you don't really know the potential for a problem. Well, and back then people – we talk about it – now, because we've all had at least some level of education about it, but back then, mm-hmm. that just wasn't something people even understood. Even, yeah. some, even a lot of physicians that were prescribing it didn't really understand didn't. what was going on. So your parents, we wouldn't expect them to know. Yeah. Well, and, 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 and you know, Big Pharma wasn't saying this stuff was was highly addictive and it was going to ruin people's lives and the catastrophe that was going to yep. be evident in your they're you know, just the destruction in your life. You know? So, so does that lead you to your first time at the age of twenty into uh, treatment center? Uh, yeah. Um, what were what was the catalyst for you getting help then? Um, I think my parents were just like kind of felt like I, you know, something was. What about on. coaches? Like, uh, um, did anybody they, they, you? I'm a really, I'm, a, I'm, I'm really, I, I'm not a. It's not a real visible thing. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm. So you were I still can, performing well, yeah. throwing shot put. You weren't kind of like whoa. You weren't missing <laughs> the field. You know, you know? Well, yeah. well, I was. You know, at the, in college, I was mostly hurt. I was five surgeries in four years, so I, oh, I, I have very okay. little actual competition because as soon as I rehab gotcha. it up, you know, I'm throwing hammer or, or, or shot put or something or lifting, and you know, I'm blowing my shoulder again. He looks like Thor. Yeah, at throwing the hammer. Yeah. Oh man. So yeah. <laughs> so I I didn't have a lot of chance to perform. Gotcha. Um, I was always so coaches might have just been used to you. Yeah, being out kind of you know yeah. at that point. Um, Wait, let I, me, let I me bring this point up. My good. dad once said he didn't know my, his dad had a drinking problem until he saw him sober. And that means he uh, knew his dad always only drunk. drunk, yeah. And so mm-hmm. if your coaches mm-hmm. and everybody only knew you always on these pills, they didn't know to expect anything different. The only person that would have real insight into you know, your personality and what it is was your parents. And they yeah. sounded like they were the first ones to notice. Yeah, my mom, man. My mom's. Moms, no. My mom's a... She's solid. 
she's the most solid person. So what was right. yours? So they they came to you, I guess, and said, "Hey, yeah, they you know they pulled me. You I think to... I was I was living at uh, me and my buddy had a little house, um, just in Clearfield. Um, we were just kind of partying, hanging out. I I was kind of done with athletics at that point. I couldn't throw anymore or anything. Um, you know, five shoulder surgeries, kind of just all right. We're gonna hang this up and. Um, so I was, I was selling cars at the time, um, for, for my dad's good friends uh, up in Morgan, um, Morgan, the Barbers, Barber oh, Brothers. Yeah. I'm from Morgan. Yeah. Barber yeah. Brothers Ford and Morgan. Sure. Um, shout out to John, John Barber, my, my dude. Um, uh, so I was working for, for him They're you know, my parents' best friends and, uh, they just kind of pulled me in it's like, yeah, we think something's going on and, and you know. We want you to go help, and I'm like, okay, because this is people pleasing, right? Yeah, and I'm gonna I'm gonna do this because everyone's gonna be so happy when I complete this thing, and I'm just gonna be able to do whatever I want mm-hmm. because you know I'll I get will a free jump pass. through the hoop. Yeah. yeah. Um. So I did. It was an outpatient program, and I you know skated by and um and kind of faked it and and knew all the right things to say and you know pretty charismatic so kind of can figure out how to navigate the room you know pretty good and and tell everybody what they want to hear but i wasn't just wasn't me you know that's the george costanza method it's not a lie if you you believe believe it it. yeah (laughs) but that's a lot of people come in to rehab with that mentality right like you you've convinced yourself well, you don't know it's it's a lie at that point. Yeah, because you convinced <laughs> so, yourself. Yeah, you think you're, you're telling yeah. it's delusional, but it's, you yeah. you have to have. It's a lot of work to have somebody help you realize yeah. that you, you lie first to yourself and then to everybody else. But yeah. then the other part of that is is that you pass an outpatient treatment program like that, and you come through and you start to believe that you're invincible because no, like, I'm fine. I just went through all these guys who are supposed to be professionals, and they didn't know yeah. I am that good. Yeah. I, I am okay. Well, yeah, or like I just kind of felt like I I had it licked. Yeah, you know, like well, this stuff's you know it's not that big of a deal. So is this when you're are you just doing pain pills at this point? You know, drink it. I always drank a little bit. You know, I was never like super intense until later. Yeah, um, you know, I was in college, so obviously I was you know partying, partying and doing my thing, and uh, so I was I was drinking quite a bit, but I always you know opiates were always kind of my my go to. That was your jam. Yeah, I haven't. I haven't done opiates in years now, but um, were you able to continue to get prescriptions during that time, or did you have to start up until buying up them? until the surgery stopped? Yeah, um, and then it was just kind of like it cut off. But you know, and that this goes back to the education thing. Like there wasn't tapers, and there wasn't a plan for me to, for me to come right. off of this stuff. And this, and was they would just prescribe a you a full bottle. Theme, there you go, and you know, for yeah. for for months on end. And so it was kind of, but at that time point, it was just kind of how life was, chronic pain, basically, always in rehabilitation for, for my shoulder, um, you know, and, and, and using alcohol and stuff to, to numb that physical pain and basically using, you know, well, alcohol helps social situations and, and painkillers help me not feel any of the feelings that I felt. How do you find yourself getting into rehab number two? Rehab number two. Uh, 
Rehab number two was Valley Camp. It was like a, a AA rehab. Um, every single time I went to rehab, I did it for somebody else. Who'd you do number two for? Uh, parents always. Always? Yeah. Um, and I, I always wanted to get clean, um, but I just was ill-equipped. I didn't understand how my mind perceived what was I, – I didn't understand how I, my decision-making was, was counterproductive to my success. Well, you mentioned that – and that's kind of skipping towards the end of the story, I think. But once you, you hooked up with a therapist that helped you understand – you know, uh, cognitive distortions, uh, mm-hmm. thought, thinking errors. Yeah, that's like what you DBT call it. And yeah. And that's, sounds like that, you know, hadn't happened yet. You're going through and doing the steps, but you hadn't quite, that level of insight is almost magical when it comes to behavior change. When it a person is. realizes what their cognitive distortions are, mm-hmm. what their thinking errors are, that is like unlocking potential. It is. But and until it, then, you keep doing the same old stuff. It was hard because, uh, you know, I see AA, like people in AA, and I see people like super successful, and, and I just couldn't ever really just kind of figure that out. And it was it was a, it was a thing of, you know, I'm, I'm really good when I'm working a program, and then when life gets busy and I uh, a couple of those things like fall off by the wayside and I start getting complacent, you know, that's where the train starts, you know, leaving the track, and, it, you know, everyone knows it happens far and fast. You know, the next quick. Time. Yeah, real quick. So what brought you to rehab number three? Was um, that Valley Camp? Yeah, I think I've been to Valley Camp like four times. So that's three, four, yeah. five, six. Yeah, a lot of this is pretty hazy because this is a lot of years of, um, you know, 15 years of. But the interesting thing is you said you always went to rehab for somebody else. Yeah, but it was always a really good idea. No, I, I was always on board. No, I didn't. You but know I what? never went for me. But, but I, what were what were ahead. no? What were they seeing? Like, like I think that that mentality. So it's you're an interesting mix in the sense. But there, you know, Casey's a lot this way too. That all or nothing. You know, I'm going to go 110 percent all the time on anything I do. But I'm also a pleaser because sometimes you get these these guys that are you know all or nothing guys, but they're not a pleaser and they're very difficult to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, but but you're a pleaser, so you could see the logic in it. What was the logic in it? Like when when they kept coming to you and saying you need to go to rehab again, you need to go to rehab again. Like why did that make sense to you? What was happening in your life that you could look at and go, yeah, I probably should go. Oh man, uh, well I have three DUIs. Okay, so first one I got in like two thousand nine. Um, so I graduated in two thousand three. So two thousand nine, I got my first DUI. Um, Halloween night. Uh, and you woke up out of a blackout with the lights behind me, big, long, red beard, dressed as a nun. Uh, <laughs> you know, I got a half a bottle of permethazine cough syrup in the back of my Jeep and, you know, I'm just left the bar in Ogden and I'm at Leighton IHOP and I just woke up with the cop car with the cherries behind me. And I have no idea how I got there. Oh, mm. Scary. So scary, that was scary. cool. Um, you know, my dad bailed me out, and 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 <laughs> um, he's such a like a business guy, and he's and he's so like just wise, um, and he just he's just like, well, you got to go to work. So I bailed you out so you can go to work because you got a lot of stuff to pay for. 
you know, this is rationally, this is the steps that we're going to take to remedy the situation. Sounds like um, a dad response. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. And, 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 you know, I, my mom was devastated. I was devastated. You know what? I didn't, my older brother, like life just kind of, I mean, I'm, I'm sure he struggles, but it, he's always kind of just made the right choices. Like, you know, it was, it's been, and, you know, life's, I'm sure it hasn't been easy, but, but, you know, he, he's, he's he been successful. Over he he makes the... good decisions. <laughs> he knows how he got to IHOP. He makes good decisions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He doesn't. Did that you know, make you feel like a burden to your parents a little bit? Absolutely. And, um, and so then I try, I had to try harder to, to, to not be that guy. And, you know, the more you try to not be that guy, the more you feel like crap because you just are that guy. You know, because well, like you, you said, you're, you were ill-equipped, uh, ill-equipped with the yep. skills to be able to to navigate life in a, in a way that that was productive for for me, you know, and it worked for other people. I saw people with years and years and years and stuff in AA and I never really and that was a source of, of guilt and shame, too. Why are these people getting it? And I can't get it. What's wrong with me? Yeah. Why do I keep coming back? There's 12 steps. You know, I know that these people are, are going to be here for me every single time best fellowship ever you know they're always going to be there with a hug you know the greatest people i've met are in those but each rooms. time you go back it's it's a reminder of a failure it's a reminder of a failure and it's a reminder of how i fell short at what i perceived was the expectation for how i was supposed to act in the world i don't want to play therapist but when you said a reminder of how i felt short i wanted to say again because it seems like it's been somewhat of a pattern in there. Mm-hmm. You fell short on the football. You fell short on the rehab. You fell short on this, the DUI. And so you're right, Dr. Matt, when you go back in there, you know, you'll go into these meetings and if you're not ready, they'll go, you're not ready, but you'll be back. Yeah. And you know what it takes to walk through those doors again? Because that guy told you you weren't ready. You told him he was full of crap and here you are coming back and he's just, he's going to go, I told you. Yeah. Are you ready to listen? Yeah. Yeah, the first guy that says I'll never use again, I promise you, I'll never do that again. Is the first guy that's going to use. Yep, yeah. he just set himself up for it. So on the podcast, uh, you've got such a fascinating story: nine rehabs, three DUIs. Uh, I mean, there, there, there's a lot of running and gunning, as they say. Lots. But there, there's usually a rock bottom. Uh, rock and, bottom. and you know, and you went to nine rehabs. Where does your, I guess, ultimate rock bottom come in? Uh, my ultimate rock bottom came in, um, oh, man, after homelessness. Well, second, so this would be my second bout of homelessness. So you guys are talking about homeless people. So I took it there. Um, now, were you just, were you still doing pills and heroin, drinking? What I was, was doing whatever you had. Whatever you had, Casey, I was, I would love to be your friend. That was and that was and that was the requirement. Yeah, I just had to have something. Yeah. So how old were you when you first became homeless? Uh, I mean, it was a short period of time. It was a couple of weeks. Uh, but don't downplay that because a couple of weeks of not having anywhere to go has got to be. Horrible. I was trying to get in Valley Camp. I had double ear infection. I was walking from the Lantern House. Um, I was walking from the Lantern House. Um, what is the Lantern House? It is a, is a uh, 
homeless shelter. Homeless shelter. In okay. Ogden. All right. Um, Ogden. And I was walking to the Alano Club, which is the, the Alcoholics Anonymous Club, but it's, I mean, it's a jaw. It's like 33rd and Wall to 24th and Washington, you know? Um, so I was walking there every morning and I was double air infection. I was, it was cold. I think it was like, um, February, or March. Um, and I was, I was going there because I knew it was safe. I knew I, I couldn't get into trouble if I was at the Ilano club because I knew those were safe people. Cause I've been in the rooms before. Um, and so that's what I did. And I just kept calling. I just like, I got to get, I, I'm in a bad enough situation to where I don't have anywhere to go. So now I'm going to take some steps to, to try and get back to build it. my comfort back up. Did had your parents sort of withdrawn their, their support? Is that how you became um, homeless? Yeah. So it was, it was, you, you know, it was basically at that point it was like, you know, what do you want us to do? They like, sort of felt like they yeah, tried everything. We've I bet. done, we've kind of done everything. Like we've, we've paid for this and we paid for that. And, you know, we've been supportive. You know, we don't have the stuff in our house. We've we've afforded you every luxury in life you could possibly imagine. You got good grades in school. Uh, you know, what's the deal? Uh, but we're seeing you self-destruct and we're not going to just, we can't just sit and watch it. Uh, and that sounds fair. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Did it feel fair at the time? Oh, pissed <laughs> oh it was the worst like these people are supposed to love me and they loved me right through it and i got into in in there and i and i got some clean time and i and i got kind of bounced back and and then i got complacent you know and i got successful for a minute you know yeah i got a roof and you know car back and all that kind of stuff and stuff started to get comfortable again and then i'm and then all of a sudden, that that sense of you know desperation um, just kind of goes away. It was your DOC heroin at this point? Um, so I, I I've never used intravenously, which I'm so happy um, that I've never done that because that you know the fact that I'm still alive today is 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 a miracle enough. But if I would have got the needle, I probably would. What stopped you from using a needle? Um, I think it was just kind of lack of opportunity. Hmm. So I was, it was, you know, I was getting painkillers and then I'd get, you know, uh, black tar heroin, but we were too good for that. We were too good to, to shoot it because we weren't junkies. Yeah. So we smoked. We're not tinfoil. addicts. So, yeah. you know. But that's a real thing. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. That's a real there's thing. A class, like part there's part of that a, delusional thinking where you lie to yourself that yeah. there's well, at a least hierarchy I'm not as bad as everywhere. those guys. Oh, yeah. Right? There's a hierarchy in, in, in drugs and, and, and people that do this don't like people that do that and because they act like this and they don't like people that take apart an entire lawnmower in 30 seconds and you know, and this guy can't keep his eyes open for, for an hour, you know? Yeah. So it, there's, there's like a, a, a clash in there and, and people judge each other. So you get some, so, sobri- so you get some sober time. Uh, you find some success. You said you got a roof over your head. You got a car, yeah. probably got some money in your pocket. What leads you to, to take it again for a test drive? And what was it that you took for a test drive? Oh, at that point, I can't, I couldn't even tell you. I can't even remember. 
Um, but it was just, it was, it was, it didn't matter what it was. Cause I didn't really care. I didn't, it wasn't the feeling I was getting. It was, it was the lack of feeling that I was chasing. Like I didn't want to feel, you know, so whatever it was, like I didn't, I wasn't chasing the high, so to speak. I was chasing, I was chasing the numb. Yeah. I just want to numb out. Yeah. I just didn't want to feel the stuff. And I did a lot of that isolated because it was, it was, it's a, a shameful thing. Like I didn't, I didn't drink with other people. I went to bars and like I, I partied a little bit and I did that in college and stuff. But, but when I was drinking, like no one wanted to watch me drink a half gallon of, of, you know, bottom of the barrel stuff. Like no one wants to watch someone do that because that's weird. You know, it's like no one, you know, that's not okay. Yeah. You know? And so, so it gradually became so isolated well, and it sounds like you were drinking or using to numb out, which tells me that, you know, th- this was self-medicating all the way. Absolutely. This isn't fun. Nobody's enjoying being around you. No, it's not being fun really quick. Yeah, you're trying to withdraw and mm-hmm. and treat something that was going on. What do you think that yeah. was inside? Was it the, uh, the losses you'd had with, with things? No, or? it was just, it was, it was just a total i think lack of 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 self-worth i think i just always felt like i was just somehow like short of the mark i just couldn't quite figure it out and i was watching people and that i loved in my life be successful and figure it out and that was you know it was i i couldn't understand what what i was doing so wrong well, in to your have own, these things happen to me because there was a lot of stuff that that happened that was that was like unfortunate. Yeah, you know, like shoulder surgery after shoulder surgery. You know, that stuff's kind of like not doesn't happen to everybody. But in your own words, in your parents' words, I mean, you were afforded every luxury that life had to offer. You had good grades, a full ride scholarship. You, I mean, things mm-hmm. that people dream of. I mean, you had them, and somehow it didn't work out for you. It well, it wasn't ever enough because nothing's ever enough. You know when. When, when everything has to come from somewhere else to make it okay, like I think of Las, Las Vegas, Las Vegas will never be okay because it can't sustain itself. It can't, it can't uh-huh. be okay. All the money you know? comes from outside. It, everything has to come in, and and food has to come in, and water has to come in because it's a, it's a desert. Well, you we know, you know it can't sustain so life. You, and so, from a psychologist's like point of view, what you're talking about is the true definition of self esteem, and I'll explain really quick. So. When, when somebody, parents with your kids, if you're listening, you can try this out at home tonight. You take A kid has a success. It doesn't have to be an A, but let's say they do well on a quiz at school or they have a good game in their sports or they learned a new song on their violin. So any sort of little improvement or success. So what do we do as parents or you know teachers or whomever? We, we celebrate it. We say, hey, good job, buddy. That was awesome. You did well on this thing that you just did. Good job. And he's happy or she's happy. You're happy. Everybody's happy. But we don't know where that person, the child in this case, is attributing the success. We don't know where it's going. They're happy because, I mean, you're always happy if you've got a good grade and your dad says good job. And, I mean, that feels awesome. (laughs) So what you have to do is you take it a step further and you say, how did you do that? How did that happen? So we don't stop at the celebration. We say, how did that happen? That's the magical question because now you're going to find out where that kid is attributing their success. If they externalize it, like Las Vegas, if they say it came from somewhere else, the the, the queen mother is, uh, I got lucky, 
But it could be something like, oh, my coach is awesome or my teacher's great or everybody did well or it, it, we played an easy team or the test wasn't really that hard. If they give away the responsibility, then we know that did not put a brick in the foundation of their self-esteem. Mm. It just floated away. It was just fluff. If yes. they can say, well, you know, I, mm. I studied extra. Instead of playing more video games, I made those flashcards, and I think that's why. Or, you know what, I, I stayed after practice and worked on some stuff with my coach or my teacher. If they can somehow own part of that success, like I did something mm. that led me to that, they've internalized it, and we call that a mastery experience. And do not discount how important mastery experiences are because I'll bet – if if we could go back to younger you, teenage you, a lot of your successes, most likely you were externalizing the responsibility. You might have been like, well, it's because even things like <clears throat> I'm a good football player because my family, my, my everyone else are good football players, mm-hmm. right? Or mm-hmm. it's because my body's big. That sounds like ownership, but it's not. It's like, well, I'm bigger than – like you were playing – when I was playing high school football, I was probably 100 pounds lighter than when you were playing 100. <laughs> like hitting Matt Woolley uh, when I was weighing like 155, uh, you know, I would have pinged off you like a ping pong ball, right? <laughs> you're, you're over 200 pounds in high school. So even that, a, a kid that big could be like, well, I'm big. But you don't own it. I'm not big because I built myself. Mm-hmm. I'm just big. Or the family's big or whatever it is. So that's something to keep in mind is a person on the outside can have all the privileges. They can have lots of success. They can have a trophy on the shelf. They can have a scholarship in the can. They can have all this kind of stuff. But if they give away the responsibility for how those things happened, it actually doesn't build their self-esteem and those insecurities grow instead. Yeah. Well, if you give away the responsibility, you don't really own it. Yeah, there's no ownership. And that and it's not cocky. Mm-hmm. Cocky mm-hmm. is is owning something that you didn't do. Yeah. I'm amazing because I'm amazing, you know. You didn't do anything. And so it's it's also fluff, but on the other end of the scale. But real ownership is a person who can say, "Well, you know what? I believe in myself. If I work hard at something, I can create a better outcome." I love it. But most mm-hmm. of the time when a person is self-medicating, any of the successes they've had in life, or most of them, they've learned to externalize and give away to something else, even just to luck. So, Dan, how yeah. do you find yourself in your last treatment center that got you on your road to 18 months of sobriety? Uh, well, um, I want to touch real quick on what you're saying. Yeah, do it. Before I do that. Um, I, I really like that. Um, and And what I think... I was doing was I was owning that, but but the outcome wasn't what I had projected the outcome to be. Uh-huh, okay. So I was owning what I had done. I had I had done every rep in that in but that it, gym to be able to afford myself the ability to play football. I did that, but it was taken away from me by this injury. So therefore, did you interpret that as I'm not good enough? Yes, because I put everything into it yep. and, and I, I failed. And I fell short. Yeah, and I and I wasn't yeah. successful in 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 yeah in getting the mark. And that, and when that happens for a person for the things that a person values in their life, mm-hmm. you know, other people may not know what you value, but you know what you value. And if you come up short over and over again on the things that you value, boy, that's hard for that not to tear your self esteem yeah. down. Well, and I was winning these shot put like I I didn't like lose a meet. 
my junior and senior year, I got invited to Russia to throw shot put after high school. That's awesome. Two weeks. Um, and, and it was like a, this life experience, but none of that stuff because that wasn't what I worked for. So all the work went into playing football and all the stuff that I was just naturally good at that I didn't own that was 100% individual effort. Football was a team sport. Yeah. But individual effort, I did all that stuff. And it wasn't ever – I never looked at it as me doing all that stuff and winning those those trophies and those medals. It was I'm doing this because it's the alternative to what because I'm I wasn't to be good doing. enough to play football. It didn't pan out the way I wanted yeah. it to pan out. Wow, so, that's that's heavy stuff. And yeah. think about how mature are any of us at that age. <laughs> like we don't have the maturity to it's handle heavy that to deal kind with. of stuff. You know, it's a lot. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a sense of loss for sure. Um, you know what finds me at my last rehab. So I, uh, so I get the third DUI, um, and and I I do like the jail and all that kind of stuff, and I get on work release and I'm out and um, doing good, and I you start drinking again. I, you know, didn't really care. I was doing like commercial roofing, um, you know, I I just kind of whatever it didn't really matter i was i was kind of like at this point i was i was atheistic and i was i was just so beat up that i was just like kind of giving up on life yeah yeah i've tried this so many times it's 15 years of just like getting just beat up you know trying like really wanting to get sober and having you know some time like put together a year here you know, some, some months there and just, and, and it have it be really good solid recovery, but it never could be sustained. I couldn't figure that out part out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, I violated probation. I, and I, and I went back to jail and, and at this point I'm like, I'm, I'm 30, you know, five years old. And I'm like, this is just like, this is just not getting any better. So, I begged the judge to to let me go to um, a program, and I I wrote Red Barn. You know Red yeah. Barn, yeah. So I I wrote Red Barn, and I went there, <clears throat> and it wasn't a good fit for me. Um, I could it, it's a kind of a behavioral modification, mm-hmm. more of not not really a really good program, not centered around um, psychology and, and how the brain kind of works and stuff, which is my jam. I think where I, my recovery makes sense to me. Mm. Um, so it didn't work out. And, and I remember leaving there and, and I walked to farming from Farmington um, to East Layton um, cause no one had picked me up. Um, and I'm at my parents' house. Uh, it's like six in the morning. It's a really long walk just really for the listeners. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. getting kicked out, basically the, the only thing I have is like basically the clothes on my back, you know? Um, and I, and I walk there and I get there, you know, I basically walk all night and, and I get there cause that's the only place I know where that's the only place I have to go. You know, that's like the only place I can go, you know? And, and I remember my dad and mom opening the door and they already know it's like, you know, cause you know, the place called them chain of custody of, you know, for, yeah. Um, for people in their program. And, um, and I, I remember my dad just not even letting me in to the house 
without him being there with me, like getting a bag of clothes, like in, in the bedroom that I had, cause I had like coming and gone, like I was homeless for a while. And then I lived there, you know, for, I kind of got, you know, good at navigating that whole situation over the years and manipulating and, and, and stuff. And, and they got smart over, over the years and just like, we can't do this anymore. Just not going to do it. So they were like, bye. Um, so I went and, and stayed at Layton Park and that was, so that was a week of, of homelessness and it was my birthday. Um, and this was June 3rd, um, of 2020. Yeah. Um, and I drank the day before and it was my birthday and, uh, I called my PO and I was like, yeah, I, I left that rehab. I know the, and I'm looking at zero to five. I'm a felon. So I'm probably going to prison, you know, if the, if the judge doesn't, you know, let me into some, somewhere else, doesn't take another chance on me. Um, and I, and he says, go to this, uh, this kind of like a holding, holding place for people trying to get into treatment like Davis County. Um, Super cool deal. It's like their old PO spot, like in Farmington. Yeah. Um, they basically just try and get people into recovery. Like that are, you know, cops will actually bring people that are um, like getting arrested, but like not like we're not going to take you to jail because obviously you need help. You know, we're going to take care of getting a program. So they got me into Odyssey House. And I knew Odyssey House was like, you know, I've heard just nothing but horrible things in jail from you know, hard, hard program. Oh, it's not one of the, I mean, it, it's a good program and has helped a lot of people get sober, but it's not a, it's not a palace and it's, it's not, not a walk in the park. No, and this is behavior modification at its finest. Um, and they have a model that works for them and, and they've done it for a lot of years. And, um, and I was at the end of my rope and I was just like, you know what? I've tried everything. I'm just going to give this a shot. Um, I don't have anything to lose, literally nothing to lose. But this is the first time you're going to a treatment center, not for anybody else, yeah. but for yourself. So broken. Just like, all right, this is the last ditch effort. Like, it's either this or, you know, I'm not, I, I never, I never played with the idea of, of taking my own life, but it sounded like a good idea for me to not be around anymore. Yeah. Because I was hurting a lot of people and I couldn't stop. Um, and so I got into Odyssey House and I started learning a lot about like myself and I started developing the self-worth and learning how I, my mind thinks and, and I'm, I'm like diving into like podcasts and psychology and, um, and I'm just learning as much as I can about how behavior and, and how these things kind of form and, um, and it just starts making a whole lot of sense, um, you know, that I can catch myself in and just by checking my motivation on things. Like, what am I doing this for? Like, am I doing this for something for, am I trying to get something out of this or am I doing this? Cause you know, cause I genuinely like care for this person and I want to help them or am I going to get a handout or a hand up, you know, kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, am I going to be able to bless that person with whatever I'm doing? And, and if, and if I can say, yeah, or if I can, if I can go to bed, and my sponsor told me this, if I can go to bed and I didn't make anyone cry today, um, then that's probably a pretty good day. And, and I, I have a lot more of those 
now than than I ever did, and I still still have a lot of you know a lot of like the character defects and the thinking errors, and and I don't navigate you know some relationships as well as I should. Um, but I'm learning. I'm figuring it out, and stuff can go like really wrong, and I don't like the first thought is not to go to the liquor store or to pick up, you know, and and so. Aussie House has afforded afforded me. You know, I got into sober living after I got that program, and and um, and a buddy of mine from school, um, Will Harris, uh, uh, owns a, a private um, gym that he does personal training out of. I've been following him because we were buddies in junior high and high school. He's been running that place for about five years, and I was living in Murray. And uh, my plan at that point was to go to school to be in sub, get my SUDC and substance use disorder counseling. And I'd already known like people in like the fitness recovery industry. And I've always been in kind of fitness and, and that kind of stuff and always kind of loved that part of it and kind of wanted to do something like that. Um, and it just so happened to work out that I, I applied to U, the university of Utah and I got denied, but this just opened up, um, my buddy called me. He's like, "Hey, man, I'm I'm expanding my business, and I want I want you to to come and be a trainer." I'd never been a personal trainer before. I'd always help people out, you know, doing workouts and and everyone you know ask questions and, and stuff like that. Because I've spent the one thing that was a constant in my life through all of it was the gym. I always stayed in the gym. I never, you know, it didn't matter what I was doing, like what I was putting in my body. I always stayed in the gym because that was the one thing that made sense to me. You know, the barbell made sense to me when everything else, nothing made sense. You know, the barbell did. And so um, I stayed in there. And so I, I cut, you know, like a, a pretty wealth of knowledge in, in, in training, you know, people to be better. And now I have like this, you know, kind of story to where I can help people um, be better people and I can help them, um, you know, get their fitness goals in, in line. And so I'm doing that full time now. And, and, and that's killer. And my life's better than I could ever even possibly imagine. That's and, amazing. And my life, like with my parents, like is, is incredible. I love your mom. Um, she's, she's, she's the most incredible person. I'm, she's the best person on this earth. And I will fight anybody that says that's not true. <laughs> and I don't want to <laughs> fight. <laughs> well, I think it, it's great what you're doing. And, and you're once again, you're a testament that, you know, nine rehabs uh eight rehabs wasn't enough but the ninth one worked for you and you kept fighting and you kept going and you ultimately ended up doing it for yourself which i think is the only way to stay sober uh you've got to do it for you everybody else benefits if you do you can't do it for anybody else but once you figure that out stuff starts to fall in line and i like that dr matt what are your thoughts well i just appreciate you so much coming on the show and being willing to share your story i i'm always impressed by guests that can come in and be authentic and i know that's going to touch somebody uh who's listening today or many somebodies um i guess i'm trying to kind of pinpoint it sounds to me like and i i don't want to put words in your mouth so you're going to correct me if i'm wrong that the real i mean the the first turning i guess there's a couple there's a turning point and then what's keeping you on the road say the turning point was desperation where you decided i just have to do this for myself i have nothing to lose and that's Epic. That's so huge compared to all the other reasons why, uh, you know, people go into rehab for others, um, you know, good intentions and all that. But but that was the turning point. But it sounds like 
the the cognitive change, the psychological change, the understanding yourself, how you think, how when you're thinking off track, when you're on track, it seems like that's what's keeping you going these last eighteen months, and and now you have an you have some other ways of dealing with the problems in life besides running off to the liquor store. Would you say that's kind of the one of the main things that's keeping you going in the direction you're headed? Yeah, absolutely. I can I can. I can understand like why I think the way I think I can never understand like why I came to the kind of the conclusions, like why that drink sounded like a good idea. Um, but kind of understanding how I, how I think I can, um, I could just, I, I was able to give myself a break. Like I didn't have to be the perfect person. Like I, my, my collective experiences has shaped my, my my life and that's how i perceive the world is based on what i've what i've experienced and that's okay i think that's true when a person really starts to understand themselves you gain empathy for yourself and you don't you stop beating yourself up and you really start encouraging yourself and so i hope that's one of the things people will take away from your story is that you can you you, it's great to have other people cheer us on uh feels amazing but the the person that really needs to be our biggest cheerleader is ourself. And I don't think that really happens until we gain empathy. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we gain empathy for ourselves if we don't understand ourselves. So I, I appreciate you sharing that part of your story on the show. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. Hey, thank you for stopping by and listening today. Uh, Project Recovery is brought to you by our friends at knowyourscript.org. And in case you forgot, Project Recovery is a KSL podcast. of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind, only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com. Follow us on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you listen.